Am I there, brother? Ah, you hear that? Man, that was good. All right, I'll put it away. If you guys have your Bibles with you tonight, we're going to continue uh, our journey in the next section of the book of Isaiah. Really cool scriptures that we're going to be taking a look at. Isaiah 24 through 27 is called by many commentators the Little Apocalypse. The Little Apocalypse. In fact, perhaps if you remember when you have studied the book of Revelation in the past, the book of Revelation is somewhere in the neighborhood of 404 verses. In those 404 verses, there are 800 allusions to the Old Testament. 800 times it's pointing back. And a great number of those times that it's pointing back to the Old Testament is found in Isaiah 24 through 27. So as we take a look at that, it's the next section. Remember, we were just studying Isaiah's woe to the nations, the judgment of the nations around Israel. Now he's going to back up and look at the world. And this period of time known as the time of Jacob's trouble known as Daniel's 70th week, that final seven-year period of time prophetically left to occur upon the earth. And so in, in Isaiah chapter 24, we'll begin taking a look at that and what Isaiah has uh, to say to us tonight. So as we take a look, Isaiah chapter 24, verse 1, he begins, Behold, the, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. He distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest. As with the servant, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so also the debtor. Listen, God's saying that His judgment, this particular judgment, is coming upon the whole earth. And everyone upon the earth at that time is going to face the equal portion of the wrath of God poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. This is one of the reasons that I personally am pre-trib. As I go through the scripture, this is what I see. The Lord declares to us in 2 Thessalonians and in 1 Thessalonians that we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a period of purification that's taken place. Scripture never talks about it. What we see is God's judgment, His wrath poured out on the earth, and Him saying, everybody gets it. Everybody. The only ones that will be outside of that judgment of God, the, the book of Revelation declares to us who they are. 144,000 sealed with the Holy Spirit upon their forehead, the mark of God upon their forehead. That 144,000, no matter what happens, no matter what's going on, they survive. What are they on earth for? The Bible tells us who they are. 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Are the 12 tribes lost? Do you really think God doesn't know who they are? He doesn't need us to tell them. He knows who the 12 tribes are. So 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes are going to be filled with the Spirit, much like the church was prior to the rapture. They'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, but they are the ones that will go forward with the Holy Spirit empowering them to, to preach the gospel to the people. And the Holy Spirit will woo and draw, and some will believe. 
But those who believe when God's judgments come upon the earth, it will come upon them as well. The only ones that are outside of that are the 144,000 sealed with the mark of God upon their foreheads. So as we take a look at the scriptures, we need to realize when we look at the Bible, we need to look at the Bible in terms of covenants. Maybe you've heard people talk about dispensations. This dispensation, that dispensation. I prefer to look at it in terms of covenants. The Adamic covenant, the covenant God made with Adam. The Abrahamic covenant, the covenant he made with Abraham. The Davidic covenant, the Sinai covenant, the law that God gave. And then we come to Jeremiah 31 and what do we, what do we come upon? The new covenant, right? The new covenant. Jesus said, this is my blood. The new covenant shed for you. For the remission of sin. Jesus laid out for us that by his death on the cross and his resurrection, he ushered in the new covenant. From Acts chapter 2 forward, we have a time known as the time when the body of Christ is called the ecclesia. The church. The bride, right? The bride of Christ. And we are looking forward to that time when Christ will call his bride home. When we look at it in other terms... And you're welcome to have any feelings in regard to the rapture that you want to have. But when you look at it in any other terms, you cannot stop short of the fact that Christ, the bridegroom, is putting his bride through torture prior to their wedding. That's a harsh way to look at it. But they're the bride. And he said... He was going to call her home. And we'll see that as we look at Isaiah uh, 24 through 27. We'll get some of those ideas. So the point here that we want to see, guys, the point we want to understand, that wrath falls on everybody. Whoever's in the tribulation, doesn't matter, right? The debtor, the one who's owed, the master, the servant, everyone will, uh, will receive the same uh, from, from that wrath poured out. Verse 3. And the land will be entirely emptied, utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. So we know that as we study the book of Revelation, the, the population of the earth is going to be dramatically cut in half. We know that, that a third of the water sources are going to be dried up, gone. By the way, just in case you wondered where a third of the water sources are on the planet, uh, United States. If you just took it out, you just took out a third of the water sources. Um, nonetheless, we see these judgments coming, these things taking place, and they're going to affect the whole world, okay? When we see all the green grass and all the trees destroyed in the book of Revelation, does that affect the whole planet or just where the fires are? It's going to affect everything. The, the world is dramatically going to change, and that's what he's talking about here. He says in verse 4, The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws and changed the ordinance. Now this is an interesting scripture, guys. First, because they have transgressed the laws. That means they purposefully stepped or walked outside of the lines. Lines that they knew that they cross. But then he says they change the ordinance. Folks, the word for ordinance is Torah. It's also the word for the Old Testament scriptures. Specifically the first five books of the Bible. They change the ordinance. 
It, it could easily be talking about the Word of God, the Word of, of God being made of, of no effect. We see, folks, within the world today, we see a, a greater and greater movement where there are full churches full of people that don't believe the Word of God is God's Word today. That, that it is a social gathering, but it's not about truth. They've changed the ordinance. It's not real. They, they remove all power from the Word of God, all authority from the Word of God. And what he says here is, God says, these are the issues. You transgress, that means you know what's right and you do what's wrong, and you change the ordinance. And then he goes on and says, you broke the everlasting covenant. Now, that is a, a difficult section of Scripture to look at. For example, uh, how do you break something that's everlasting? thought it was everlasting. It lasted forever. It would, you could break the really long-lasting covenant, but you couldn't break an everlasting covenant, can you? When we take a look at the word broken, a better translation of that word or an alternate translation of that word is the word frustrated. That people are working against God's design and the everlasting covenant. Now, Folks, when we look at the covenants, like I was sharing with you earlier, there are many covenants in the Scripture, and many of those covenants are everlasting. For example, the Abrahamic covenant, when God made a covenant with Abraham, God said, I will, blessing, I will bless you. He said everything was predicated upon him. Nothing was predicated on Abraham. That means it's not an if-then covenant, it's an I-will covenant. When God gives an I-will covenant, that covenant is based on him. If it's based on him, it's everlasting. The covenant that he gave with David, the same way that, that there would never cease to be someone to sit on the throne of David, a messianic covenant, that the Messiah would come through the line of David. It's everlasting. But if we think of the term broken in terms of frustrating or, or working against what God's trying to do, and you consider the Davidic covenant, the coming of the Messiah, and the fact that Messiah was cut off, Again, part of God's plan, but we can begin to see the frustration or the, the attempt to stop what God is doing. Now, whenever we try to stop what God is doing, we, we don't do a very good job. God still accomplishes His perfect will and plan. So as we take a look at that, He's saying, here's the issues. You transgress, you, you know where the lines are, you step outside of them. You take the Word of God and you change it, and you are working against the plans of God. You're working against that, that ultimate work that God is bringing. So he says in verse 6, So therefore, the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Now you remember the covenant that God made with Noah. What did he promise him? He never again flood the world, right? The scripture tells us that at one time the earth was destroyed being covered with water. But that's not what's going to happen the next time, right? What does it say? That it will burn up. That it will burn with fervent heat. Now, can you imagine being in Jerusalem, receiving this word from Isaiah, and him saying that the whole earth is going to be burned, and you thinking, how in the world is that possible? But we have much of a problem understanding that today. All it takes is one guy pushing a button, right? And it's all gone. It's all gone. Well, here the Word of God lays that out, the possibility of global destruction 
thousands of years ago when people were still fighting with swords and spears. Yet God says, the end from the beginning. All men will be burned up. He's talking about that destruction. The Bible says that in Jesus Christ, all things consist. That means he is their purpose, their ultimate purpose. And he is that which holds it together. Now, not only does that speak physically, but it also speaks of our lives. If our lives are unraveled, if our lives are unraveling, are, are we submitting ourselves? Are we surrendering ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he holding our life together? Because if he's holding our life together, it stays together. But the scripture tells that one time all of creation is held at his hand and all Jesus Christ has to do for the world to end is let go. That's it. The science will confirm that they don't understand how it is that the atom stays together. It's a mystery. It's a mystery, but it's okay. The Bible says it's in Jesus Christ all things are held together. What happens when an atom is let go? Burns with fervent heat, right? Just like Peter said, just like Isaiah is talking about here. Now he goes on. And he's going to say in, in verse 7, Now the, the new wine fails, the vine languishes, and the merry-hearted sigh. Well, listen, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said that prior to his coming the, in the world, they would be marrying and giving in marriage. That they would be living this days, having fun, partying, doing all these good things. But he said that would be when? Before the time of Jacob's trouble. After Jacob's trouble begins, and that is day one, that's not the case anymore. That's not the case anymore. Now it says what? It says, new wine fails. The vine languishes. Nobody's partying. All the merry-hearted, they sigh. The mirth of the tambourine ceases. The noise of the jubilant ends. The joy of the harp ceases. They will not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. There's a cry for wine in the streets. Wine in the scripture, by the way, is always a symbol of joy. They see in the next verse, is a cry for wine in the streets, for all joy is darkened, and the mirth of the land is gone. In the city desolation is left, the gate is stricken with destruction, and it shall be thus, <coughs> excuse me, it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people. It shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the harvest is done. Now, what happened? What's, the, what's he talking about? The gleaning of grapes or the shaking of the olive tree when they would go and harvest the olive tree? I learned this when I harvested my wormy apples on my apple tree. Some of them apples are way up there. Now, I could get a ladder and pick them one at a time. But you would not believe how many apples fall off that tree if you just back a truck into it. <laughs> you whack it. You guys see, you got an apple tree, try it. You hit that tree and then the whole back of your truck fills up with apples. You got to be careful. You put dents in it that way in the truck, not the tree. Tree was fine. But that's what he's talking about. That olive tree being shaken. And when the olive tree is shaken, all is falling. When we read the book of Revelation, what does God say? 
I will shake everything that can be shaken so that all those things that you're putting your faith and trust in, you'll realize shouldn't have your faith and trust. And hopefully you will turn to the living God and call upon his name and be saved. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. This is what he's talking about. Now, in verse 14, he goes on, they shall lift up their voice They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore glorify the Lord in the dawning light when the sun arises. The name of the Lord of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we have heard songs. Glory to the righteous. But I said, I am ruined. Ruined. Woe to me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously indeed. The treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. So fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. Now that phrase ought to remind you of a few things. For one thing, in Revelation chapter 9, we're introduced to the pit, the abuso. In Jude chapter 6, we also see that same pit, the abuso. The place where angels are held in reserve for judgment. The worst of the demons, the worst of the disobedient angels were bound in a pit. The book of Revelation tells us that pit one day will be opened, loosed. The worst of the worst to come forth. And the ruler of them, he has a name. You remember? Abaddon. Abaddon, Polyon, the destroyer, he will come forth to do damage upon the souls of men. So this abuso that he's talking about, this pit, we see it first spoken of in chapter 24. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you. What did it say? O inhabitants of the earth. There are two phrases for people in the book of Revelation that God talks about. Just two. Earth dwellers and heaven dwellers. It's the only two. You're one of the two. Earth dweller literally means to be of the earth, fleshly. The heaven dwellers means just that. Those who are seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about that, it should remind us of the book of Ephesians, which tells us that in Christ Jesus we are already seated where? In the heavenlies. Already seated in the heavenlies. Listen, as we think about it, as we consider it, here's here's, uh, what the scripture lays out for us. Um, The book of Revelation lays out for us a constant reference for those who dwell on the earth. We see it in Revelation 3.10, 6.10, 11.10, 13.12, 13.14, which is in contrast with those who dwell in heaven, which is in Revelation chapter 13, uh, verse 6. The question is, who are we? Are we seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenlies, like the book of Ephesians lays out? Or are we earth dwellers? Are we those upon whom the wrath of God is being poured out? Which one are we? When he talks about earth dwellers here in Isaiah, that's what he's talking about. The inhabitants of the earth, literally those who are of the earth. That the earth, the, 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 
Earth itself makes up their being, who they are. But the scripture lays out for us that you and I, we are what? A new creation created in Christ Jesus. We're no longer earth dwellers. Ephesians says we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Where is the body of Christ right now? It's at the right hand of God. Who are we? The body of Christ. So the scripture lays out these things we want to see, we want to recognize, and we want to understand. When we study the book of Revelation, folks, we're going to see in chapter 1, 2, and 3, seven letters to seven churches. What is it that he's told to do? He said, write the things which you have seen. Chapter 1, Revelation of Jesus Christ. Write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches. Not only specifically speaking to each of those churches, but spanning all of church history. From the first letter to the last. Laying it all out for us so that we can see the span of church history. And then write the things which will take place, what? After these things. Metatauta. After what things? After chapter 2 and 3. What was chapter 2 and 3? The church. All of a sudden, after chapter 3, you're not going to read the word church anymore. John looks up to heaven and the Lord says, come up here. And John, the rest of the book is where? Seated in the heavenlies. Seated in the heavenlies. So, as we take a look, we just want to understand this, this, this distinction. The distinction between the earth dwellers and the heaven dwellers. In verse 18... And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear will fall into the pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in a snare. Now listen, folks. The book of Revelation tells us who comes up out of the midst of the pit. The beast. The Antichrist. That coming world ruler. And what we need to do when we think about him, when we look at the scriptures that talk about him, we need to recognize that... He is going to be the most dynamic person ever to rule on the face of the earth. He's not going to come with horns and a pitchfork and look all evil. He is going to sound great. Incredible. So incredible that the nation of Israel will receive him as their Messiah. He'll bring peace to the Middle East. Nobody's ever been able to do that. He's going to work incredible things. And the people are all going to bow down before him. But the second seal in the book of Revelation is war. He comes promising peace. The reality is war, death, and famine. That's what's going to really be in his wake from that moment that the tribulation period begins. And this is what he's talking about. The one who comes out of the pit, he's going to be caught in a snare. Who's going to catch him? Jesus Christ. Folks, when Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19, he takes the false prophet and he takes the Antichrist and he casts them alive into the lake of fire. A place prepared for the devil and his angels. The ultimate hell that one day all who reject Christ will go to. A thousand years later, at the end of the millennial reign, Again, we see the great white throne judgment. All the living and the dead are judged. And those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ will be cast into the lake of fire. And you know what the scripture says? Where the false prophet and the beast are. Not were. Are. A thousand years later, they're still where? 
And they're still there. So the scripture lays this out. This is a snare that's going to come on him who rises out of the midst of the pit. It says, and then he goes on, says, Now for the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now recently I saw a, a movie, 2012, is that it? Anybody ever see it? You don't want to, you don't want to admit it, huh? I'll probably get in trouble. Somebody will listen to the tape and say, I can't believe Preacher went and saw a movie. But anyways, I saw 2012. Now listen. When I saw it, it was kind of interesting because they put all this stock in the Mayans who had no idea what they were doing. They just had to stop a calendar somewhere, didn't they? So they stopped the calendar and that's going to be the end of the world. But they say in the movie, well, the Bible almost got it right. Well, they got that kind of flipped. The Bible's got it right. How it's going to take place. But one of the premises in that movie is that the earth would shift on its axis. The interesting thing is, scientists are realizing that's already happened in history before. And it will happen again. The book of Revelation tells us there will be a global earthquake. Do you understand what that means? A global earthquake. That's all the way around the world at the same time. By the way, that's the sixth seal uh, in the very beginning of the tribulation period in chapter 6. That global earthquake that's going to take place where the earth could shift on its axis. And they portrayed that concept in that movie. They portrayed the concept of the earth changing and, and rotating and places being, things being out of place, not in their normal place anymore. And that's what the Bible is talking about. The Bible is talking about those things taking place. When's the last time it happened? Genesis chapter 7. Or you may remember the flood. Prior to the flood, the earth was the same temperature all the way around it. What happened after the flood? Wasn't that way anymore, was it? Folks, you can still go to certain places in Alaska and dig up a woolly mammoth standing there, frozen solid with food, palm fronds still in his mouth. You ever seen a palm frond grow in Alaska? Been a long time since palm fronds have been in Alaska. Something occurred, changed on the earth, and instantly it was frozen. That's the only way. If I was freezing to death, I'm not going to freeze solid chewing on a palm fry. <laughs> so when we take a look at these things, when we realize, listen, this is what he's talking about. Not, not that, that he's not looking back to what happened, but he's saying these are things that are going to occur again. That the heavens are going to be open, windows from the heavens, and the foundations of the earth will be shaken. Look what it says. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. Two times the Bible speaks of a global earthquake in the book of Revelation. Chapter 6. At the wrath of the Lamb, the beginning, the sixth seal, and chapter 16. We see the same thing. The earth shifting, moving, changing. Globally, we see these things going on. Again, Isaiah talks about it in chapter 24. And it will come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones. Well, who is that? The Lord will punish on high the host of 
of the exalted ones. The Bible tells in Revelation chapter 12 that when Satan fell, who went with him? Third of the angels, right? And Jesus declared, don't you know, you will judge the angels. Maybe this is what he's looking at. He's looking at the judgment of the angelic beings at the end as all these things come to pass. And they will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered, where? In the pit. And they will be shut up in the prison. After many days, they will be punished. So some beasts are going to be, or some things of any uh, of some type, are going to be closed up, imprisoned within the pit. Jude chapter 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Isaiah says they will be gathered together, these exalted ones, these angels, if you will, as prisoners gathered together in the pit. And after many days they will be punished. And the moon will be disgraced and the sun will be ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. And you see that word elders. Folks, in the book of Revelation, we are introduced to the 24 elders. Now, a lot of people have a lot of ideas about who or what the 24 elders are. The 24 elders, number 24, was the distinction given in the, uh, the book of Chronicles for the 24 courses of priests that were to be numbered to unite all of the priesthood. All of the priesthood would stand in 24 courses. They would be represented by 24 elders. What did Jesus say you are? A kingdom of priests. 24 elders is the term in the scriptures from chapter 4 forward where we see the church. Oh, come on, Jackie, what are you talking about? Talking about the song of the redeemed, brother. Revelation chapter 5, read it. The 24 elders sing a song of why they have been redeemed from the earth by the blood of the Lamb. Who does that sound like? You and me. Redeemed by Jesus Christ. The song of the redeemed, Revelation chapter 5. So as we take a look at these things, when he says, now Jesus is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. Mount Zion, guys, is a reference to Jerusalem. Mount Zion, the mount, same as Mount Moriah. Jerusalem is on Mount Zion. Jesus is going to rule there from his kingdom at Mount Zion. And his elders are going to be with him. The elders. Jesus said, I go prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again, bring you unto myself. That where I am, you will be also forever. We will be in his presence as his elders, if you will, ambassadors that he provides during his kingdom with different jobs. Now, when you and I are in the kingdom age, good news, uh, we don't sin anymore. We don't mess up anymore. The Bible tells in 1 Corinthians, remember we stated in chapter 13, when we see him, we're going to be what? Like him. We'll know even as we are known. From the moment we're with Jesus, the sin nature is gone, and we are perfected in His presence. And we watch the rest, we deal with the rest from His side, with Him. No longer worried about falling or failing or or blowing it. Once we're in His presence, it's over. Indisputable 
fact. Nobody argues that point. So once we're with Jesus Christ, they argue when we'll be with him. But once we're with him, that's it. Done. Finished. There'll be no more fall, and we will serve as his ambassadors during the kingdom age. Now, chapter 25, he says, Lord, have mercy. I don't know if I'm going to make it. No, that's not verse 1. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. He begins chapter 25 with praise. A praise, a song of praise, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's making a choice. Do you know that we are able to choose praise? You can choose praise any old time you want. Any time you want to. I have been in the middle of a hospital waiting for word on a young man who played football for me who just simply fell off a motorcycle. Simple, tiny, little accident. Father of two. Had to be flown to the hospital. While he's in the hospital, we're all thinking he's going to be okay. I mean, he didn't need it that bad. He just just barely fell off. He just went over to bars. We'd all been over to bars at one time or another. But when he went over to bars, he hit his chest on a rock and ruptured his breastbone, and pieces of the bone were lodged in his heart. We didn't know that at the time. So they're working on him, and they come out, and they say, Hey, we lost him twice on the table. We're going to try one more time. If we can't bring him back, we're going to let him go. So they moved us to a separate room. And we're sitting in that separate room waiting, and I'm looking at his, his wife and his father and his brothers. They all had played football for me at one time or another, and we're praying. And the doctor comes in, and you know before he says a word by how he comes in. If he's coming in to give you good news, he doesn't look like he looks when he's coming to give you bad news. And he gets out. He just gets out the words, basically, I'm sorry. And a variety of people start crying. And I watched that boy's father choose praise. He lifted his hands to heaven and he praised God. Most powerful thing I have ever seen in my life. Did it mean he was happy? No. But he chose praise. And here, this is what Isaiah is talking about. Choosing praise. Choosing to look to God as our salvation, no matter how things look on the outside. Choosing to worship. Choosing to glorify Him. O Lord, You are my God, and I will exalt You. I will praise Your name, for You have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And we just studied that this morning, right? All throughout God's Word, it's true. It's true. The critics of Isaiah say there were four Isaiahs because they can't explain how Isaiah knew all the things he knew. I can explain it much easier than there were four Isaiahs. God told him. God told him. Your counsels of old are our faithfulness and truth. For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore... The strong people will glorify you, and the city of the terrible nations will fear you. He says there's, in essence, two results from the judgment of God. The righteous, those who desire to call upon the Lord. Why are they called strong ones? Because how do we stand? we stand in the strength of our own might, or we stand in the strength of the Lord? So the strong ones, what, is, what marks them? They glorify God. That's where their strength lies, in the choice to praise. 
And the others, the terrible nations, they fear. Revelation chapter 6 says, the, The kings, the rulers, will hide themselves under the rocks and pray, call out for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Revelation chapter 6, first six seals, first three and a half years, what did he call it? The wrath of God. We are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are the second three and a half years worse? Uh-huh. Yeah. The Bible calls them the worst time of all human history. But from the beginning, the Word of God calls the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, the outpouring of the wrath of God. Now he goes on. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of the aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of the cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. The Lord will stand. Who are going to be the weak in the tribulation? Who will be the hungry? It's going to be those who put their faith and trust in Him. Why? Why are they the weak? Why are they the hungry? They didn't take the mark. And if you don't take the mark, what happens? You can't buy or sell. You can't go out and, and get the things that you need. The Lord says when the tribulation saints, the martyrs for Jesus Christ, have died, that they're at the throne of God, and they call out to the Lord, and they say, How long, O Lord, till you will avenge us? And the Lord says, When your number is complete, when the last one who's going to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and die for it is a part of their number, then God is going to bring His vengeance upon the earth for that time. And we read about that when we get to the seven bowls of the judgments of God in the book of Revelation. Now listen, when that's going on, when all those things are occurring, when, that's, when that is, is being laid out, the Lord says, Now these who are here, the sun will not bake their head anymore. They will be hungry no more. They will be abused no more. Because these are the ones who sided with God and were hated for it and destroyed by the enemies of God or the Antichrist. And so that's the point that he's laying out for us here. Verse 6, And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all the people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the leaves. What's he talking about? Well, some people think he's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, the, the marriage, the Bible talks about two feasts. The feast of God, bad. The marriage supper of the Lamb, good. The feast of God is right before the battle of Armageddon and God calls all the carnivorous birds of the earth to the valley of Armageddon. And they're circling, waiting for supper. Bad feast. That's not good. They're going to feast on the, on the bones of kings. But the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, will enjoy her marriage supper with Jesus Christ in that place. Now, folks, we could also be looking at a feast that occurs after the tribulation period at the beginning of the kingdom. So that's a possibility too. 
that we could be looking at here. But whatever the case, these, this is a feast that the righteous are going to enjoy with their Savior. And he goes on. He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. You know, the Bible tells us that there's a veil on the nation of Israel, right? That they can't see, that they can't understand. Do you know in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I think chapter 3 verse 16, it says, if they turn to Christ, the veil is lifted. So what's the veil come from? From a rejection of Christ. What is it that Paul said? Don't you know that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned? If you don't have the Spirit within you, can you understand the things of the Spirit? No, they're hidden from your eyes. In essence, you're veiled. That veil is there because of a rejection of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, If you turn to Christ, the veil will be lifted. We'll be able to see. And so, he lays out that there's this veil upon not just the nation of Israel, but upon all those who have rejected the Lord. And he goes on, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all the faces. Doesn't that sound familiar? Don't we read that in Revelation? 404 verses, 800 allusions to the Old Testament. That idea, God will wipe away every tear, is right here in Isaiah chapter 25. The Lord God will wipe away every tear, and the rebuke of His people, He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. And we have waited for Him, and He will save us. What's he talking about? The nation of Israel is going to receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They will receive Him. All who receive Him will be the Israel. All who don't aren't Israel in the first place. What do you mean? What's Israel mean? Governed by God. Just because you call yourself a Christian, did it make you a Christian? Just because you say... You are a believer? Does it make you a believer? No, that is something that takes place in the heart, right? Not necessarily on our own confession saying, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I know a lot of people that say that. The president. Whatever. Okay, so when we look at this, hey, this is what he's talking about. When the scripture says all of Israel will be saved... Israel are those who are governed by God. Those who say, as these say, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him, and we will be glad and rejoice in whose salvation? His. Is it ours? Who, does it, who is it predicated upon? Him. Not us. What does that mean? You're secure in your salvation. If my salvation depends on me, I can mess it up. If it depends on him, he won't. Paul says it this way. I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded he will keep me. God keeps us. And this is what he's laying out for us here. For on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest. Now this is a picture he's painting. Look at it. And Moab will be trampled underneath him. So on one hand, you have the hand of God resting at peace but the feet of god trampling the choice is where do you want to be with the hand of rest 
or with the feet of judgment. You want to be where the rest of God is in His kingdom or where the judgment of God lies with, with Moab. Moab, the Bible says in Psalms, is His wash pot. It's the toilet. It's where all the junk is that needs to be washed away. And, and so when we look at Moab, this is what we see, where they will be trampled as straw, trampled down for the, from the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls, he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, down to the dust. Now in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nations which keep the truth may enter in. When we see the kingdom age begin, we know that there is something called the judgment of the nations that occurs. That only those, like Isaiah says here, who keep the truth will be ushered in. Jesus said it this way, And as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. It will be the judgment of those nations through the tribulation and what they do with God's people. Were they the guy pushing the button for the guillotine to chop the heads off of Christians? Were they the guy refusing food and refusing to help and, and watching them starve and die by the thousands? Or were they willing to give even a glass of water? Because Jesus said, even if all you give is a glass of water, you have joined in to that one's ministry. You've been a part. So there will be that question to be answered. Those who have kept the truth, they will be a part. And listen to this. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. But that's one you might want to put on your fridge. You ever have a hard time being in the peace of God? Understanding, realizing the peace of God? What does he say here? You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Literally, whose mind is pressed into you. Upheld by you. Remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean, not into your understanding. That word lean is the same thing. Don't be upheld by your own understanding. Be upheld by who? God. And you will experience perfect peace. Perfect peace by him whose mind is stayed on you. The whole book of of Philippians, guys, is all about changing my mind and God changing my heart. Changing my mind and God changing my heart. The whole book of Philippians lays it out. Here's what it says. To be kept in perfect peace is a matter completely and totally of our mind. It isn't so much a matter of our spirit or of our soul or of our heart. It's a matter of our mind. We are to love the Lord our God with all our mind. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. We can have the mind of Christ. We are not to set our mind on earthly things, but to set our mind on things above. The Christian life is not an unthinking life of just doing or experiencing, 
but it is also about thinking. And where we set our mind is essentially where our walk will be before the Lord. You want to experience perfect peace? Then set your mind upon Him whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For Yah, the Lord, He is everlasting strength. That concept, that word for everlasting strength can also be translated rock of ages. Isn't that cool? He is everlasting strength. Literally, it's rock of ages. He's the rock of ages. What does that symbolize? Everlasting strength. He is everlasting strength. For he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down. The feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 5? Blessed are the meek for what? They will inherit the kingdom of God. What's it say? Their foot will tread it down. The feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The way of the just is uprightness. O most upright, you weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments. O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name. Can you say that? The desire of my soul is his name, Yeshua. What does Yeshua mean? God is salvation. Is that the desire of your souls? Because this is what he's laying out for here. What, who are the upright? Who are the righteous? Not those who are perfect. What's he saying? Those who have waited for the Lord. Watch and pray. Waiting earnestly looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, waiting for Him, and what? The desire of their soul is upon His name. And for the remembrance of you, constantly mind focused on Him. And then listen, with my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. That's a God sandwich. That's a good way to have and spend every day. What's it mean? My last thoughts are upon Him, and my first thoughts are upon Him. God sandwich. The two slices of bread are our thoughts, prayers, lives, mind focused on Him. Focused on the Lord early in the morning, focused on the Lord late at night. And what's in between? The rest of the day. The rest of the day. We want to experience all that God has for us. And that's how we ought to be. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. In the kingdom age, he will rule and reign with a rod of iron. No one will steal. No one will rob. There will be nothing upon the earth that is evil. The Bible says, if, if, and I emphasize the word if, a man were to die at 100 years old, they would indicate that a baby had died. That's during the kingdom age. Many people believe during the kingdom age, men will live from the beginning to the end. The full thousand years. And why? Because the Lord will teach them His righteousness. And at the end, what choice are they making? 
Do I follow Jesus? Or will I follow the devil? Satan is loose for one season, right? You see, God is answering the age-long question, am I a product of my environment? And the Lord says, no. And I'll prove it to you. For a thousand years, I'll give you perfect peace. No one will ever rob from you. No one will ever do wrong. No one will ever steal. No one will... Everything will be perfect, upright righteousness. And in the end, I will release Satan after a thousand years of perfect peace for one season. Say, spring. Because our clocks spring forward, and that's a terrible time of the year. So for one season, Satan is loosed. And the army that Satan gathers, the Bible says, cannot be numbered. More than the sand of the seashore. It's a lot of people, right? A lot of people. Will their excuse be, well, my dad didn't love me enough? I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. I had a hard life. Is that going to be their excuse? No, they'll have grown up in a perfect world. And they'll discover that man's rejection of God is simply the outpouring of the wickedness that's within his heart. And if he won't set his mind upon the Lord, make a choice, then he'll reject him. And that's what he's laying out for us. That's what he's talking about here. He goes on now and says in verse 10, Now, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not uphold the majesty of the Lord. What's going to happen at the end of the kingdom age? He's going to rebel. Even though he never was hungry once. Even though everything was right. Verse 11, Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see. But they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. The fire of your enemies will devour them. The Bible says at the end of the kingdom, at the end of that time, there's no battle. And there's no war. The kingdom age just ends. They come marching against Jesus. We will be there with him that day in Jerusalem when that occurs. And the Lord, perhaps, he'll have his head hung low in sorrow for those who are making a choice. And immediately as the army comes down upon him, they will find themselves in line before a great white throne. And it's just over. The Bible says the heavens will roll up as a scroll. The earth will pass away. And the living and the dead will stand before the great white throne of God. Bang. Your choice is made. Decision done. Those who align themselves with Christ will enter into the new heaven and the new earth. Those who didn't, they go where the Antichrist and the false prophet are, still existing a thousand years later. This is what he's talking about. Verse 12, Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. Is that not an amazing verse right there? Ephesians chapter 2, for we are saved by grace through faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. Isn't that what he just said? Who did the work of salvation in us? God did. He did it. He did all our works in us. And beside our God, masters, or O Lord our God, masters, 
besides you have had dominion over us. What are they talking about? They have served other gods. But by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead. They will not live. They are deceased. They will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You have glorified. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. By the way, you ever wondered what it's going to be like in heaven thinking about that person that didn't make the choice? And how can heaven be heaven if I still have that memory? If I still remember, you know, my brother or whomever chose to rebel against the Lord? Well, when I read this, it brings me comfort. You have made all their memory to perish. It's gone. It's gone. There won't be eternity of what-ifs. There will be just perfection of being in God's presence. Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth only wind. In pain, in travail, in heartache, and all this stuff going on, but there's no fruit. At least for the woman given birth, she goes through all that pain, but there's this beautiful child at the end. But for these, there's nothing. There's just the pain of childbirth and nothing. The wind. And it's gone. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Then we get to verse 19. We'll just look at these 19, 20, and 21 briefly tonight. We'll probably focus on them a little bit more next week. But listen to them. Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Who's talking? Isaiah. What's he saying? There's going to be a resurrection. Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For the dew is like the dew of herbs. The earth shall cast out the dead. There will be a resurrection. Everyone who has ever lived will be resurrected. There are two resurrections. The resurrection of the living. Resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the righteous to eternity. The resurrection of the lost to an eternity. Ultimately getting what they asked for. The absence of God. I will not have God rule over me. So they will be in uh, the absence of Him. Now listen to verse 20. Come, my people, enter into your chambers and shut the door behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. That word indignation is synonymous with the word wrath. Come, my people, enter into your chambers and shut the door behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the wrath has passed. Most 
see this as the first speaking or the first mention of the rapture in the Scripture. Why? Because he's not specifically talking about the nation of Israel going into Petra. There's other places that talk about that, but he's not specifically talking about them. The evidence lays out that he's talking about those from the whole earth. Why? For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. When does that occur? Tribulation. That's the context of the verses. But what's he say? Come, my people, enter into your chambers. So that word for chambers is very similar to the word we read in John 14 too. In my Father's house there are many mansions. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will bring you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. Promise of the rapture. And we'll take a little bit closer look at that when we uh, get together no- next week and, and talk about it some more, because there's more uh, we'll see in, in chapter 27. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place. He comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. The dead will rise. At the end of the tribulation period, the living and the dead, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, they'll be judged. And the earth will pour out the slain. The oceans will pour out the slain. And all of those will face judgment. All who have ever been on the face of the earth. So we'll pick up again there. Remember again, we're looking at chapter 24 to 27, which is called the Little Apocalypse. Uh, Those four chapters are really focused in and tie in directly to the book of Revelation, speaking wholly and totally about that 70th week of Daniel and the end of days. So exciting things, exciting things laid out there for us to take a look at, to consider, to ponder, and to allow the Lord, as we plant that seed, allow Him to water it and watch it take root. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank You for this time we can come before You. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word for what your word teaches and how your word leads us and indicates, Lord God, your plan. And may we, Father, put our hope and trust in you because you tell us the end from the beginning. May we realize, God, that your word is truth. Every word, every jot, every tittle, every every part, God, speaking truth to us and is profitable. It is profitable for instruction. For instruction in righteousness, for reproof, for for rebuking, for changing our ways, for adjusting those areas of our life that are off track. Lord God, that you give us this word that we might apply it to our lives. Yeah. For those who have perfect peace, their mind is stayed upon him. Bring us that perfect peace, Lord Jesus, and enable us put our mind on you have our mind totally focused upon you on your word on the truth 
Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for this time we could spend together. We ask that you would keep us safe until that time that we might gather together again. We lay this time before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.